This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We were planning this week to interview David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com, about his most provocative book, Devil Dog, which tells the story of General Smedley Darlington Butler and a plot to overthrow the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933. And uh, also being unavailable to this week was the backup interview we had lined up with Ayman al-Zawahiri, who, citing some new responsibilities, was unable to make the time for us. And uh, for more information about Mr. Al-Zawahiri, we refer you to the excellent BBC documentary made, I think, like in 2005, remarkably long time ago, outlining the interplay between Al-Qaeda and the neocons. This came to Mr. McMillan's attention through Russ Baker's website. We highly recommend that you take a look at uh, this three-part series. We'll try and put it onto our website, which is badly in need of some updates. We'll see what we can do about that. Hopefully by next week we will have that for your viewing. Again, highly recommended. And yes, if the name isn't ringing a bell, Ayman al-Zawahiri is the number two guy in al-Qaeda who's now been promoted in the wake of a recent shakeup. Although after viewing this documentary, many would doubt whether Osama bin Laden really ever was the head of al-Qaeda, as opposed to Ayman al-Zawahiri, who basically brought bin Laden on board because of his money and said, hey, you get to be number one. We hope to have more, uh, more discussion of that very topic in some future installments of the program. We may even want to bring Russ Baker back to talk about the, this documentary. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question being the 23rd of June, which, by the way, is one day after this year's summer solstice, which is usually on June 21st or 22nd. Marking that uh, time period we call summer, this is kind of a new development, referring to summer specifically as the time between the solstice and the equinox. Back in Shakespeare's time when he talked about a midsummer night's dream, he did not mean the early days in August that would be the midpoint between the solstice and equinox. And by the way, a little bit of trivia for you, Groundhog Day, in case you weren't aware of it, marks the midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring vernal equinox. We at Radio Parallax advocate a similar (laughs) six-month-out-of-sync summer holiday. We don't have any August holidays, so I think I I propose that we uh, start a groundswell for Midsummer's Day, which we'll we'll all take off and go to the beach. What do you think? We should note in advocating that, by the way, that that opinion, like all those heard on Radio Parallax, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But we feel it's safe to hazard a guess that they would be in favor of such a holiday. All right, it was on June 23rd in 1868 that American inventor Christopher Latham Scholes was granted a patent for a device he called a typewriter. A device which uh, eventually did catch on. On June 23rd in 1931, American aviator Wiley Post and Australian navigator Harold Gaddy left Roosevelt Field on New York's Long Island for the first successful round-the-world flight in a single-engine airplane. They logged 15,400 miles flying via Newfoundland to England, 
then staying north across Siberia, Alaska, and Canada before returning to New York eight days, 15 hours, and 51 minutes later. On this date in 1969, Chief Justice Earl Warren, who led one of the most liberal phases of the U.S. Supreme Court, resigned his seat. Richard Nixon appointed Warren Burger as new leader of the Chief Judicial Office of the United States, shifting the court to the right. Since, as luck would have it, most Supreme Court appointees since have been made by Republicans, the court has continued to move to the right. So I'd argue with Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Justices Roberts and Alito that the court has moved to the right of, say, William McKinley. And no, we're not going to talk about the Supreme Court today, but we do need to talk about Earl Warren on this program. We've been promising that for some time, and we haven't gotten around to it yet, but we will. On June 23rd of 1985, Eric Hyden won the first U.S. Pro Cycling Championship, 156-mile race. Hyden had turned to cycling after winning five gold medals in speed skating at the 1980 Winter Olympics. Dr. Hyden is currently an orthopedic surgeon in the Sacramento area. A few years back, he chanced to be working out in my gym, where this correspondent was able to observe the fact that his success in speed skating and cycling has something to do with the fact that he has legs like tree trunks, which I'm sure came about due to a lot of practice. And finally, it was on June 23rd in 1988. Keep that date in mind, 1988, when it was noted that the worst drought in 50 years in the United States was the result of the greenhouse effect, according to a NASA scientist speaking to the U.S. Congress. I believe this was James Hansen who asserted that the increased consumption of fossil fuels, which release carbon dioxide that traps the sun's radiation, is causing the global climate to change. Keep in mind, this is 1988. And uh, James Hansen is someone else we need to bring on this program. We'll, we'll see what we can do. All right, our quote of the day comes from Craig Ferguson, who said recently, Bodybuilding is tough. You've got to train constantly, eat the right foods, and cover up the fact that you've had a baby with a maid. And our bonus quote of the day comes from sports writer Jimmy Cannon, who noted that sports is the toy department of life. Our quote of the day comes from Jimmy Fallon, who noted some weeks back, it was just revealed that Osama bin Laden's bedroom had the only air conditioner in his entire compound. Yeah, I was starting to think that guy was a bit of a jerk. And our bonus quote of the day, not quite as funny, comes from Senator Doug LaMalfa, who's from Richvale and a Republican who apparently said during a recent uh, floor speech criticizing a Senate bill which would seek to identify the communities most affected by greenhouse gases, global warming made me freeze in my home yesterday. That was said, of course, because recently it was cool in California during our spring, uncharacteristically cool, as a matter of fact. Of course, this week it's 103. Nevertheless, among Republicans, this is what passes for a rapier-like wit. A joke of the day comes from the classic Dave Barry calendar, wherein Dave noted, I guess it was the June 21st entry, I myself have experienced only one real disaster, Hurricane Andrew, and it was considerably different from the disaster movies I've seen. For one thing, in the movies, there's always some kind of romantic interest, Whereas after Hurricane Andrew, nobody in the affected area was able to shower for approximately two months. Everyone smelled like a cologne named Oh the Dead Goat. The most romantic thing people did during that time was refuel each other's generators. 
And this week, we're going to take a, uh, a bit of a diversion into our stat of the day. In fact, we're going to take large diversions on a couple stats of the day. All right, our first stat of the day, and I think Mr. McMillan needs to have an appropriate uh, clip for this one. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. But our stat of the day comes from a Paul Richter article in the Los Angeles Times from June 13th, and I think I'll just let this one develop. According to Mr. Richter in the article, after the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in March of 2003, the Bush administration flooded the conquered country with so much cash to pay for reconstruction and other projects in the first year that a new unit of measurement was born. Pentagon officials determined that one giant C-130 Hercules cargo plane could carry $2.4 billion in shrink-wrapped bricks of $100 bills. They sent an initial full plane load of cash, which was followed by 20 other flights to Iraq by May of 2004 in a $12 billion haul that U.S. officials believed to be the biggest international cash airlift of all time. This month, and he does mean this month, June of 2011, the Pentagon and the Iraqi government are finally closing the books on the program that handled all those Benjamins. But, notes the article, despite years of audits and investigations, U.S. defense officials still cannot say what happened to $6.6 billion in cash. And here's the part of the article I like so much. Notes Mr. Richter, For the first time, federal auditors are suggesting that some or all of the cash may have been stolen, comma, not just mislaid in an accounting error. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Now, I don't know. I think Paul Richter's going out in a bit of a limb here because who hasn't experienced a situation where... A C-130 Hercules cargo plane filled with shrink-wrapped bricks of $100 bills might get lost in the accounting. Actually, it appears we're talking about almost three cargo planes worth of shrink-wrapped bills. And we at Radio Parallax think it's irresponsible to suggest theft over accounting errors as the reason why. But noted the article, Stuart Bowen, Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, an office created by Congress, said the missing $6.6 billion may be, quote, the largest theft of funds in national history, unquote. And notes the article, the mystery is a growing embarrassment to the Pentagon and an irritant to Washington's relations with Baghdad. And boy, don't you wish you were given a fly on the wall during, <laughs> during those talks? I told you this would be a bit of a detour, but I just can't resist some of the reporting in this article, which I'm going to continue to quote from. Pentagon officials have contended for the last six years that they could account for the money if given enough time to track down the records. But doggone it, repeated attempts to find the documentation, or better yet, the cash, were fruitless. Meanwhile, Iraqi officials are arguing that the U.S. government was supposed to safeguard the stash under a 2004 legal agreement it signed with Iraq. Hey, hey, you were supposed to be watching the money, not us. That, they say, makes Washington responsible. Abdul Basit Turki Saeed, Iraq's chief auditor and president 
of the Iraqi Board of Supreme Audit, which I'm willing to bet is a very coveted post, has warned U.S. officials that his government will go to court if necessary to recoup the missing money. That's right, Mr. Basit Turkey Saeed. Lawyers will fix this one. And, uh, and offering his two cents in this was Iraq's ambassador to the United States, Samir Somadide, who said clearly Iraq has an interest in looking after its assets and protecting them. And no radio parallax is not able to explain how they consider a, <laughs> a cargo plane loaded with $100 bills headed for Iraq as one of the Iraqi national assets, but I don't know. Uh, if I get it reimbursed, I guess I'd consider it that too. All right, so our stat number one of the day is $6.6 billion missing somewhere between Washington and Baghdad. Our second stat of the day is $6 billion, which is also missing. Only this time it's between Washington and the taxpayer. Because, ladies and gentlemen, our U.S. Senate this week spared the ethanol subsidy, which is a $6 billion tax break, which had been, by the way, criticized by members of both parties and as an unwarranted and wasteful giveaway. The ethanol industry, which has been boosting food prices across the United States. But apparently the lobbyists for the ethanol industry were able to prevail. This despite the fact that, uh, per the calculations we saw, five gallons worth of ethanol fuel requires four gallons of petroleum products to produce, which causes us to echo the words of the measure's sponsor, which was Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma, who said that ethanol is bad economic policy, bad energy policy, and bad environmental policy. Well, be that as it may, it does remain the U.S. government's policy which means that $6 billion we're still going to give the ethanol industry, which we, I guess, have to just borrow the money to pay. And or tax you and me. And I think at this juncture, we need to move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for e-commerce, sort of, with the news that the e-commerce site Silk Road, which it evidently bills itself as the Amazon.com of illegal drugs, will apparently deliver cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, and marijuana through the mail <laughs> to the buyer's front door. Noted NPR.org. Um, this is illegal, but we're guessing a land office business. If you have any experience with the Silk Road website, please drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. Your identity will be kept confidential. Better yet, just send us a line about, quote, a friend, unquote, and what that person has experienced on that website. And it was, uh, conversely, a bad week for international cannabis tourism, with the news from the Netherlands that the Dutch government is planning to turn the country's, quote, coffee shops, unquote, which sell marijuana over the counter into private clubs for Dutch citizens only. 
Noted someone at the Justice Minister, this law will put an end to the nuisance and criminality associated with coffee shops and drug trafficking. Opposition lawmakers are calling the new restrictions, which are to be phased in over the year, tourism suicide. And the plan is opposed by the Amsterdam City Council, saying it will lead to more street dealing as Dutch citizens just buy pot at the coffee shops and then sell it to tourists at a markup. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for local anti-cannabis, or at least pot club initiatives, with the news that TV host Montel Williams has opened up a midtown Sacramento cannabis dispensary. According to an article by Miles Bennett-Smith in the Sacramento Bee, the host of his nationally syndicated television talk show and also pitchman for prescription drug assistance products, also a fruit and vegetable emulsifier, Williams came to town last week to speak about his own battle with multiple sclerosis and why he turned to marijuana to alleviate near-constant neurologic pain. I have to say that they're making a lot of noise about it. It looks to me like, uh, it looks to this correspondent as if uh, the cannabis clubs are pretty much here to stay at this point. And we would like to note as a public service announcement, if you have always had a burning desire to get a whiff of a, <laughs> of a giant flowering plant that smells like a corpse, you may want to check with the UC Davis Botanical Conservatory. Because apparently their Indonesian corpse flower, labeled Ted the Titan is about to bloom again. The Botanical Conservatory Greenhouse is located on Clyber Hall Drive off Hutchinson Drive behind Briggs Hall on the UC Davis campus. All right, let's see what our old pal Will Durst has to say about political development, shall we? He is, after all, America's foremost political comic. Hey guys, Will Durst here to report on the first GOP debate of the year, hosted by CNN. And the clear winner was the 99.99% of the American people who neglected to watch it. But for the six of us who did, the strategy of the combatants was more obvious than an elephant in a stairwell. Bash Obama, take a breath, bash again, and repeat. Every time the frontrunner, Mitt Romney, was given an opportunity, he circumvented the question and relentlessly whipped into his failure of leadership mantra like a broken hand puppet, to the point where he needs to be careful to keep a respectful distance from the phrase or voters might think it reflects on him. Oh yeah, Romney, he's the failure guy. To say that Obama's failure has been the preferred Republican tactic for the last three years is like saying that water is an effective medium for whale migrations. Repeatedly claiming his abject non-success to be their number one priority, Republicans have facilitated it by opposing the president at every step of every way since day one. If obstructionism were an Olympic sport, these guys would have more gold around their necks than Mr. T. And yes, of course, the purpose of the loyal opposition is to oppose. But Republicans would rather see the economy sink like a truck engine in a swimming pool than have Obama given credit for its comeback. On the podium, however, amongst themselves... The six men and one woman held a veritable love fest with Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, Thou shalt not speak ill of other Republicans, clapping mouths shut tighter than Madoff's credit line in Vegas. They also echoed Reagan's call for more tax cuts and further deregulation, which back in the day was characterized by George Herbert Walker Bush as voodoo economics. And in the midst of the crisis that we're in, doubling down on the problems that got us here is way beyond voodoo. These guys are practicing sorcery, more dark magic. 
Where's Dumbledore when you need him? For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. By the way, Mr. Durst will be appearing along with social critic Michael Parenti in a KZFR-sponsored event in Chico in the fall. We'll keep you up to speed when the time draws closer. Well, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.